Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. If you enjoy the show, become a member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. My guest for this episode is Penny Livingston-Stark. Penny is a longtime permaculture practitioner and teacher who operates the Regenerative Design Institute in Bolinas, California. RDI is located at the 17-acre Commonweal Garden. I've been aware of Penny and her work since I started formally studying permaculture five years ago, and she has remained one of the most suggested guests for the show, often by her former students who have themselves appeared on the podcast. I think I've talked to more people who have studied with her than of any other permaculture instructor thus far. When this interview was originally scheduled, Penny and I talked about using her work in international permaculture as a focus for our discussion, but instead turned towards the idea of peacemaking. Drawing from her experiences using permaculture and ceremony for conflict resolution, we discussed the need for inner landscape work in order to build community and move the practice of permaculture forward, or, to put it another way, how we have to get right with ourselves so that we can better our use of the ethics and principles to create lasting change that cares for this planet we call home and all the inhabitants. She is clear to point out, however, that permaculture as a design system is not a metaphysical one, nor does she include those ideas in her teaching. Rather, that a deep exploration into natural systems invites a further examination of our connection to the world around us and the nature of life and other living beings. These ideas set the overall tone for our conversation, but we also discuss the need for experimentation and the cultivation of useful skills. This interview, though not planned as such, serves as a buffer and connection between the two discussions on right livelihood embodied in the roundtable discussion recorded at Seppi Garrett's, of which the next piece is out on June 24th, 2015. My only regret in this interview with Penny is that there is a bit of noise at some points in the recording, but they do not detract from the breadth or meaning of what Penny shares with us. Enjoy this interview with Penny Livingston Stark, and I will join you afterwards with information about where you can find her and her work, as well as an upcoming class she is teaching. So Penny, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you share with the audience a bit about yourself and how you came to practice permaculture, and then we can take the conversation from there? Well, I live on the Northern California coast in a place called West Marin County. Uh, It's coastal, a dairy country, and we run a 17-acre permaculture education center called Regenerative Design Institute, and the name of the garden is called Commonweal Garden. We're also a pro- one of the kind of projects of Commonweal, which is doing really big work in linking environmental health with human health. So we have uh, education programs here teaching permaculture practices and strategies, and so we grow a variety of different foods. We're in the maritime climate, so it's foggy a lot, like right now, <laughs> in the spring and summer. So we're kind of trialing what kinds of fruit and uh, veggies we can grow on the coast. We're actually able to grow peaches, which is exciting. That's part of what we do. And then I also consult and teach uh, internationally in many other parts of the world. And what's exciting about that for me is being able to really talk with communities about how to become more resilient in an energy-depleted world. And what I'm finding is that these concerns, that they're shared concerns throughout the globe around what 
we need to do because oil isn't going to be so plentiful in the future and there's a lot of toxicity in our food system and in in the air and the water and we have to start designing our whole infrastructure differently and that's the conversations I'm having with people uh, through permaculture design and that's what I've been doing and I got into it back in around 1990 where I was just led into a permaculture design certification training and I had no idea what it was. No clue. I didn't know if it was gardening in Alaska or a new hairdo, but my intuition brought me to this training that took my whole paradigm at the time and turned it on its head and brought me away from what I had been taught in conventional education into more of what I know to be true just from my own experience in the world. And permaculture design really supports that. And so from there, I just started sort of following my path and asking lots of questions and experimenting with things, intuiting a lot and doing a lot of different types of gardens all around. And and I've learned a lot from the plant world especially but also water has taught me a lot and just learning from the natural world, which is uh, one of the best universities one could ever imagine. And you're someone who, through the numerous interviews that I've done over the years, you've been the person who taught many of the guests who I've spoken to. And I feel fortunate to be able to sit down and speak with you because of that long experience that you have with permaculture and being an educator with a voice that many people resonate with. And I was wondering from that moment when you took the design course to then transition into teaching, was that something that you did fairly quickly? No. Uh, Well, maybe by some standards, but back then, no one knew what permaculture was. So I made a commitment to myself that I would only go where I was invited and I would only talk about this to people who asked me. I didn't, I wasn't like a woman on a mission going around trying to convert, you know, have you heard the word of, word of permaculture today, you know? I, I, I wasn't doing that at all. But what I did do is I, in my own yard, I had a three quarters of an acre garden that was, it was basically just flat acre. And I started building a garden there. And we used the permaculture principles. So, for example, we... Back then, we had so many snails and slugs, like we couldn't even grow a daffodil. The flowers would get eaten, and so we. I realized, oh, I don't have a, I don't have a snail problem. I have a duck shortage, and we started planting, you know, some strawberries and some fruit trees. But the, the bugs were eating all the strawberries. So I said, you know, we have a duck shortage. So we got ducks, and um, I thought I'd rather, you know, watch ducks and kill snails but then pretty soon I thought well I'd rather sit by a pond than change duck water so I we built a little garden pond uh in the in kind of sort of the energetic center of the garden and and then how are we going to keep it topped up well we'll have our roof water go in there you know rainwater that pipe in some of the roof and then it doesn't rain most of the year so we started processing gray water and I was very lucky because of where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area there's lots of teachers that come through here so the person who influenced me on this one is John Todd who has Ocean Arts International he lives in um, 
uh, New England, but he comes and speaks at conferences and talks about his his living machines, which are these biological water purification systems that he designed. And and uh, I just looked at that and I thought, well, uh, you know, John had all of these vats that he would pump water from one to the other, and he would start with you know raw you know sewage and then. Uh, over pumping from vat to vat to vat using biology, he would ultimately clean this water to 99.999% clean, no detectable levels of any toxicity in the water. And I was very inspired by that. So when I went to design my my system to process my laundry and bath water, I thought, well, rather than pumping it from vat to vat, can't I just have it become a marsh where it can just flow through a medium like gravel and which is a house for bacteria and then you know go into the water treat it and and I talked to John Todd's people and I said can't I just do like a simple sort of marsh system and they said sure and so that's what I did and it 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 turns out that it's actually technically it's a constructed wetlands but I'd never heard of a constructed wetlands but I just designed it based on permaculture principles and the inspiration of John Todd's work but then I had this big pile of subsoil sitting in my yard from when we dug out the pond and I thought well I need an office (laughs) and so I had learned a technique well, I actually hadn't learned it, but I'd seen a technique called cob construction, which came from Wales. There's a man in Oregon named Yanto Evans who brought this tradition, he's Welsh, to this country. And when I took my permaculture design training in Oregon, I saw the first cob structure ever built in the United States at Yanto's house. And I was just completely enamored that you could build a house out of clay balls, <laughs> dirt balls. And so I called Yanto and uh, they came down and taught a workshop and we built the first cob structure in California, which is my office, and um, out of the soil from the pond. So here's this pond that, you know, is, is the home for the ducks. It processes gray water, it catches roof water, and it became the source of material for an office. And then from there, we put in a whole food forest, we call them, of fruit trees, all different kinds of fruit trees. And people started coming and they started asking questions. And, you know, we had herbs and berries and fruit and flowers and those plethora and bees and chickens. And it was too small of an area for goats, I thought. But now my son and daughter-in-law live there and now they have goats at the same site. But, yeah, so we just had this whole integrated little homestead and people... And we kept it really beautiful. That was one of the things is uh, we made sure it looked always looked really beautiful and people would come and we had a bed and breakfast. So the bed and breakfast guests would stroll through the gardens and, and uh, I remember one man guest, he was a sheriff, and he actually started to weep in the garden when he started understanding the deeper message behind what it was we were doing. Basically just walking the talk and setting an example. So the garden itself became the catalyst for people to get curious about what permaculture was about. And so that's kind of how how I started. By creating that demonstration site and showing other people this work, then grew these invitations to other places to share more about permaculture? Yeah. And then simultaneously along with that, there was a architecture school called San Francisco Institute of Architecture in San Francisco. 
and they wanted someone to come and speak about permaculture at the public speakers event there. And I was, by then we had, there was, I joined a little, there was a small little uh, Bay Area permaculture guild group that I was part of and no one else wanted to go. Everyone was terrified, including me, (laughs) to go speak, but I agreed to go do that. And um, so I went and spoke there and then they wanted me to become an instructor. They invited me to to start an ecological design program there with some other architects and and a contractor And so five of us started the ecological design program there and developed the curriculum. So I started teaching there. And then through organizing these workshops, I would organize them through the Bay Area Permaculture Guild, and we would just start doing these little workshops on composting toilets or this cob workshop. It was called um, The Foundations of Building with Earth. And we built with cob and light straw clay and a number of different uh, innovative foundation systems. And we built this little structure kind of workshopping it. And that was the beginning of organizing workshops was to actually get some things built and learn myself how to do these things and invite teachers to come to teach me how to do it. And then I, in turn, passed on this knowledge. You know, another thing I did, too, after I took my permaculture training, I would spend pretty much like a year and really immerse myself in different aspects. Like for a while, I became passionate about how to process sewage, which was part of the great, you know, living machine and gray water and composting toilets and how to deal with that and then how to harvest water. I spent a, a year really learning all the different water harvesting methods and then uh, natural building was a big part, you know, cob and light straw clay. And I was part of a group called the Natural Building Colloquium. Now it's called the Natural Building Network and it's a national organization. But back then it was just a small group of people um, invited by Yanto, you know, my mentor, my earthen building mentor, to come and help each other learn the different techniques of building you know, because at that point, you know, the straw bale people thought, oh, well, straw bale is the best, most sustainable material. And the cob people are going, no, 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 straw bale sucks. Cob is much better. <laughs> and then somebody else like, no, 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 timber frame is really the most sustainable. And everybody's waving their flag saying their technique was the best. And really what, what we realized is they're all good and they all have a, a value and they all do very different things. They perform very different ways. And so we, um, Yanto called an invitational gathering of natural builders so everybody could start teaching each other their techniques. So then the cod people saw how amazingly good an insulation straw bale is. And the straw bale people thought, oh, wow, cob is so versatile and it's so sculpty and you can have do so many beautiful things with cob. And then out of that birth, what we call the hybrid house. So you can have straw bale on your north wall and cob on your south and you have thermal mass and you have insulation and you have... You know, so that was really exciting to me, and I got way into that for many years, and I still am into it. But I didn't specialize necessarily in that. But other people have gone on and specialized in earthen floors and, you know, different kinds of techniques and building. And now I sit on the building appeals board for the county of Marin, and we're in the process of getting some of these techniques legal. In fact, we have gotten an ordinance that was recently unanimously approved to start approving building with a lot of these materials like cob and straw bale. So these techniques in our county are becoming legal and I'm I was unanimously approved to be on this building appeals board. 
So that was kind of a vote from our county building inspectors and planning department people and of a kind of a vote of confidence for the work that we do here, which is awesome. It's really an honor for that. So we're having a positive influence locally and internationally. Two recent conversations that I had were about that engagement of public policy and putting ourselves out there as designers and educators and just people of interest so that we're a part of the conversation, that it's not just about having conversations with those who are in the know, but taking this message where we're invited as well as to where we're needed and it can make a difference. And you come from this background that was very immersed in this material as both a teacher and like a workshop leader and organizer. From those on-the-ground techniques and practices, how did you make the transition to peacemaking and permaculture and helping people to reconnect to a land base? It seems like a really big jump. Yes, thank you. Well, it was an interesting um, thing because one of the things we observe is we know how to clean water biologically. We know how to grow food without chemicals. We know how to build buildings that don't have, you know, the average 2,500 different chemicals in them. We know how to build natural buildings. We know how to do these things. And as I learned, many other people were learning, and, and, and then there's different lineages that happen all throughout, say, the country and the world. I have a lineage that I belong to and that, that, that come from before me that all, and also come after me, as well as other people who we haven't been exposed to each other. And then there's the greater society out there and different other nations and groups. So I started looking at, well, this is all such, this is all such great material and such great ideas and really functionally abundant, awesome, inspiring things here. Why isn't it happening all over the world? You know, what's getting in our way? And then we realize there's the ego system that we have to restore, not just the ecosystem. So... We started doing a lot of work around our inner landscape, and then through this work, we were exposed to a man named uh, Jake Swamp, who was sub-chief of the Mohawk Nation, and he and we've had a number of indigenous people who are attracted to permaculture have come and mentored me specifically and others as well in the traditions of peacemaking. And what inspired me was that uh, Jake brought forward the story of the peacemaker and that story is the story of how our constitution in the United States was created. You know, it wasn't the creative intelligence of four landowning males. It was the creative intelligence of a process of the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee people over hundreds of years of consensus, true consensus process and true democracy to create a set of government and laws of governance that was given to our founding fathers, including Ben Franklin, who spoke fluent Mohawk, and, you know, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, actually one of my relatives. And it was a powerful story of the peacemaker. And it affected me on such a deep degree that we started incorporating different uh, routines uh, from from that tradition, including what we call this Thanksgiving address, where you take, for, so for every 
every meeting that we have here, every class that we start, we just share a moment of gratitude for all of creation. And there's different ways of doing that. And sometimes it could take 45 minutes and sometimes it might take 10 minutes. And sometimes we just share, you know, our name and something we're grateful for, but just to help everybody who comes here to remember what a gift life is on this planet. It's not a right, it's not a privilege, it's a gift. So every day is a blessing. And that's just where I come from. So we've been incorporating it in our practice here just so that we can have a community that lives here that can be in good relationship with each other and, you know, not gossip and backstab and bad rap people or even put people on pedestals or worship people, like be human together. And I think that's the culture part of permaculture is to start developing healthy routines and healthy agreements and healthy you know, ways of having attitudes of gratitude because it's, it's deeper than just being kind of Pollyanna. Oh, yeah, everything's all good. It isn't about that. It's about seeing the blessing that we are and living into that. And, and it, I think it's not a religious thing. It's not a metaphysical thing. It's just a way of bringing community together so people can feel safe and positive and in a good frame of mind. So when we do do two-week intensives, people are in a really cooperative state so that we're not having to go through permatherapy, (laughs) that we can actually be working together as a unit. And I think that that's what's keeping us from moving forward. So we're bringing that in. And then that's one piece. And then the other piece is I was invited into a Native American university in California where they... uh, these elders kept calling me to come in and there was so much backstabbing and so much bite, you know, backbiting and fighting and, and, and resentment. And it was like a hornet's nest. And I kept saying no. And they, they were pretty desperate. They needed education on this land right away. And they also needed something to break open, almost like a, like lancing a, a blister because like things were festering so bad between the people. So um, I agreed to do a PVC and originally they had called me to come in to help heal the land because they're on an old military base here and deal with the toxicity on the land. But I got there and what the land, what I heard come forward strong is the message is that the health and balance of this land lies with the people. And if the people can't come into unity, then nothing I can do will help them. And that's what I told them. I said, there's nothing I can do. You have to make peace with each other. And they kept asking me, and um, part of me was kind of saying, you know, what part of, I can't work with you, don't you understand? um, So I agreed to do a permaculture design course there. And we we, we, we labeled it Peacemaking and Permaculture. And um, I talked to a lot of my Native friends who wouldn't even go near that place because of the bad energy and cried on a few shoulders in that process and said, I don't want to go into a hornet's nest. And they're saying, Penny, you're going into a hornet's nest. But Jake Swamp himself agreed to come out and help me and support me and launch the program. So he flew out from Syracuse, New York, and came with his wife, Judy, And we had some other people, um, my friend John Young and some other Native people came and supported me and we launched it and he told the story of the peacemaker because I thought these people don't remember who they are. 
because the namesake of this school is the name of the peacemaker. I've been taught I don't say the name of this man because out of ceremony, outside of ceremony. So I've never actually uttered his name out loud, but it's on the internet. <laughs> um, his name, and, and, and um, so he's the namesake was this university, and so it was named after this peacemaker, but they couldn't remember even who he, who he was. So Jake Swamp came himself and flew out from Syracuse, New York with his wife, Judy, and he was there with us for the first three days, the, the permaculture design training there, and it was about 80 people, about almost half, maybe not quite half Native people, and then the rest non-Native people. And we had a ceremony where we dug a hole, where they had a tree, it was a fig tree someone brought, and we uh, planted, uh, we kind of did a ceremony where we all put all, you know, all our resentments and all the things that we're carrying that weren't serving us anymore into the ground and weapons, psychological weapons in, in this, in this ceremony. And then the women planted the tree and these young men, native men conducted the whole ceremony and uh, we planted this tree and it's thriving. The other thing that happened too is they started a sacred fire at this land when the course started, and a sacred fire has many different traditions, but it's a fire that just doesn't go out. It's tended all the time, and there's different ways of doing that in different Native traditions, but in this case, this fire burned for one and a half years, day and night through the winter. The people tended this fire. So that's kind of a, a symbol of the success of the, the course, because during one of the times, some a woman brought out an eagle feather, and passed it around, which means deep, deep heartfelt counsel. And a lot of apologies happened and a lot of restitution happened and a lot of forgiveness happened and a lot of understanding happened because a lot of the permaculture people that just wanted to take a permaculture course showed up into the middle of this hornet's nest and they didn't understand what was happening. And then this uh, eagle feather comes out and everybody starts sharing deep and it went until 4.30 in the morning but that healing happened, and then we still had our curriculum, and we're still doing our permaculture training all throughout, and the elders started coming back, and the, the board of the university opened up, and nothing's perfect, because we're all human, but we succeeded in, you know, using permaculture design as a way of opening a conversation among people who may have a lot of differences on one level, but they are all coming together out of love for the land and love for the earth. And then that translates ultimately into love for each other. But it, it starts with more love for the natural world and love for the earth. And so that's where I think peacemaking and permaculture are linked. To reconnect people with the land base, to give them a sense of place in the area that they live in, and in turn then to build off of that to help build community. Mm -hmm. And then and then they start to realize, you know, that everybody's sharing the same values, the same goal toward the land. And then that starts to unite the people together more to create the vision of living on the land. And that's what the earth is calling. You know, when you listen to the earth in a deep way, that's what she's calling for. She wants peace. She wants unity. She wants us to really celebrate being able to live in the garden that she's creating for us. 
and I've been thinking about this a lot around, you know, I'm coming more, instead of saying, you know, the earth <laughs> or the planet, she's our mother. And if you look at the definition of a mother, of our biological mothers, our human mother that we all came out of, I don't see any difference between our biological mother and our mother earth because she does the same thing. She nurtures us. We came from her. We'll return back to her. She provides for us, for all of our needs. And I don't really see a difference between her and any mother on this planet by definition. We just happen to have a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, we've had a tragic history of objectifying our relatives, turning them into things. Arnie Nass said, you know, the best things in life are not things. We've turned, we've objectified life. And that's just something that some philosopher or scientist, somebody like Descartes, who made a lot of great contributions to humanity, kind of decided that animals don't have souls. And that's what distinguishes humans. And it's like, well, really? How do you know? You know, I, I would question that. After watching animals and being with animals, we're an animal. You know, and, and I think part of, interestingly, permaculture has led me to really question um, a lot of assumptions that we as a society, as a Western society, have signed on to to agree with, like, what is life? What constitutes something living? Somebody made a definition of life and everyone agreed and said, oh, okay, that sounds good. And that's what we ta- were taught in school. But is water alive? To a Hopi woman, it is. To me, it is. Is a stone alive? Are the minerals alive? You know, these are questions that I would question, you know. I wouldn't assume that they're not. And this becomes part of that internal dialogue as you do that work within your personal landscape to raise these questions and come to a new understanding of yourself and your place in this continuum of not only humanity, but just overall life and existence on earth? Yeah, I mean, it's a way uh, for me, the way it, how it lands for me within my inner landscape is that I realize I'm not alone. You know, I'm not alone. I've got many, many allies and family out just outside my door. And that reinforces the idea that's often spoken of in permaculture of of having an abundant outlook on the world, that it's not a place of scarcity. There may be resources of one kind or another that is dwindling, but it's just because of the way that we're framing the question that it seems like we're running out of something when there are other ways we can approach what's occurring in the world. Yeah, like for example, just in this whole thing, part of the whole my whole the whole peacemaking journey, one of the shoulders I was crying on about what to do with working with the university was Chief Warren Lyons. He's one of the I think a faith keeper of the Onondaga Nation, one of the six nations. And uh he says he, I've heard him say this publicly, he says, What you call resources, we call relatives. And I think that that's something, that's a prime worldview that not all permaculturists share, but I share that. And a lot of the permaculturists that I know, many of my students, are are being led to that level of relationship with the earth. 
You know, I can't speak for everybody, and it's not taught in our curriculum. What I'm speaking to you now about is not, I don't bring this up. I might bring up in the opening circle about the Thanksgiving address and why that's important as citizens of the United States for us to know our history, but I don't bring in a lot of this stuff into our permaculture trainings. I don't know that it's appropriate in that context, but what does happen is as people go on their journey and start connecting with the natural world and interacting and observing deeply the processes and understanding biology and ecosystems and the interconnection of life, they start to really get the sublime perfection and balance that we're living in. And the phenomena of the intelligence of plants, of the wild, nature of animals, and part of a big part of permaculture curriculum is to question assumptions, not just jump on to just because somebody says so is what makes it real. Actually, well, you know, let's start thinking outside of the box. And, you know, one of the first mottos or little sayings we put on one of our first brochures was uh, that quote by Albert Einstein that says, you know, a problem cannot be solved by the same thinking that created it. You know, and other permaculturists have, have used that motto, or that, not motto, but whatever, quote. And, you know, it's an important piece if we're going to design our way out into a new world and emerge as a, into the ecological post-industrial society, then we've got to start doing things very, very differently, which means we have to start thinking and understanding our world in a very different way and, and, and kind of lose some of the old assumptions of you know, objectifying nature, objectifying creation. Very important because as long as we do that, then it allows us to not feel deeply, to go chop something. You know, we would never do that to a baby because we have relation to baby. Then why do that? to to our water, you know, flush toilets, you know, why do we pee in our water? That That's a whole thing that, you know, don't even get me started on that one. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, if we had a different relationship to water, we wouldn't be defecating in it, especially potable water. And so you opened up the question of peacemaking, and peace isn't just an absence of war, it's how what we carry in our hearts and, and in, in our inner being. It's a state of mind or state of, of being. So it's a consciousness shift. With what you've shared with us in this conversation and questioning assumptions and reconnecting to the land base, there are a lot of conversations that I've been privy to about the state of permaculture. And there have been some folks who question whether or not inner landscape work is a part of that process or not. If there should be an inner zone you know, or some have labeled it as zone zero, zero, and all of these other pieces, such as whether or not permaculture is just a design framework, or is it also a movement, or is it something more than either of those definitions? And and I wonder where the community of practitioners and people of interest will take permaculture moving forward as these kinds of questions come up, and as we have to think more fully about what design really means beyond just the landscape, but as we also look to the communities around us and healing ourselves and reintegrating ourselves as human beings and as animals 
into the world around us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting conundrum in a lot of ways. You know, you know, I'm saying everything I'm saying here, and on the other hand, I want to say too that I am a total stickler and um, you know support for the original permaculture design curriculum for the training. Like we don't go into let's embrace our permaculture in our trainings. A PDC permaculture design course is one thing. It's a particular set of curriculum that a lot of the conversation I'm having now is not part of that curriculum, okay? And I think people collapse the movement and the training together. They're different. They're different. There's a permaculture design course, a PDC, and that is one thing that has a set of globally agreed upon curriculum, and I am on this, I'm on the side of keeping it. It's not broken. Let's keep it the way that it is. And I, we actually, I'm on the board of the Permaculture Institute of North America, and I was on the standards committee because we're actually creating a peer-driven organization, the only one in the U.S., that to create a professional organization to start creating a set of standards. And so PINA, we call it, Permaculture Institute of North America, is developing a set of standards. It's on our website that does allow for some, you know, people to bring in creativity around, you know, different kinds of ecosystems. Because I happen to know if I'm, ter- if I'm studying and I've studied permaculture with Bill, in drylands. Well, there's a huge focus on drylands in that course. You know, yes, the whole curriculum is covered, and there's a particular focus on drylands. Or in an urban context, you know, yes, the whole convers- you know, the whole curriculum is covered, but there's a particular focus on urban. Or if you're in California, very complex ecology here. There's a focus on conservation biology or things like that. Or tropics would be another one. But that said, yeah, we're doing, you know, savannas, we're doing temperate, we're doing, you know, the whole enchilada in terms of curriculum. So that's that. But what Native people who I work with and a lot of Indigenous people love about permaculture is that it actually brings people into a metaphysical world of nature connection. And metaphysics is not being taught in the PDC. However, it leads people there and how can you not, when you start delving into creation and working, in, if you're really walking the talk and going in and deeply observing and deeply experiencing the natural world and starting to understand the language of the birds and understand how plants, how amazing plants are and the integration between pollinators and, and nectar, nectarvores and insects and animals and water and soil and fungi and microorganisms and that whole interconnection, I don't know, you have to be a piece of cardboard to not have some sort of, you know, get into some sort of deeper um, experience there, which some people label as metaphysics. So, you know, there's some people out there, you know, metaphysics should never be taught in permaculture course. It's hardcore science is what we're going for. Great, but that's the course. Then there's your life. And there's a, some sort of boundary in there between that, but it bleeds into each other sometimes. And then there's the movement of people out there trying to change the world. And yes, there, it is a movement. And it's a curriculum. <laughs> 
But I think it's a, you know, I think to address your point, I think it's important to not collapse the two onto each other because then all of a sudden that's, then it limits it. Then it becomes, okay, permaculture is the curriculum and it's reduced to that. And then the movement is what? Regenerative design? Like, is it that we're not allowed to, to really expand and grow in our connection to the earth under the name of permaculture? That means if that's the case, then... You know, this is partly why I changed our name from Permaculture Institute of Northern California to Regenerative Design Institute is because I don't have to be kind of, uh, what do you call it, limited by this is permaculture and that isn't, you know? <laughs> is this, that's not permaculture. You're having, a, you're having a deeply spiritual experience. That's not permaculture. Okay, fine. You know, if that's where you want to put it. So I'm kind of dancing on a fence with it, to be honest. And, you know, to be clear, I am a complete supporter of maintaining the permaculture design course as it is. So the other piece here is that some people say, well, if it's not in the designer's manual, it's not part of the permaculture design course. Well, I happen to know that when Bill Mollison presented that permaculture design manual, he said, this is a representative, he did this in 1988, this is a representative of the best work of the last 10 years. This is not intended in any way to be a, a static document. Because what is in there, the whole John Todd work with the machine isn't in there, Paul Stamets work isn't in there, all the whole natural building thing isn't in there, community decision making and group processing isn't in there. And these are all things that really, I think, good, competent permaculture courses are, are, are covering now. Not just you don't go through the chapters, because it's completely outdated at this point. And it's a completely brilliant piece of work. Amazingly brilliant document, that designer's manual. So, yeah, that was a lot. It was. And regretfully, how these conversations so often go, they're over far too quickly as we're coming to the end of our time together. And though I feel that we've touched on a lot of the pieces that we had talked about wanting to cover in our conversation today, I'm sure that there's plenty of this that once it goes out to the audience, they would want to hear more on. So I'd love to have you back sometime. But before we draw this to a close, do you have any final thoughts or last words for the listeners? What's needed now, what the world is needing, are people to be in their passion and curiosity and really learning skills, developing practical skills over the next you know, few years. And I would say focus on that. Learn how to be useful. <laughs> Learn how to do useful things and, and, um, because we're, we're missing people with deep, competent skills. That's one piece. And then the other piece is for people in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, we're launching this organization, Permaculture Institute of North America. You can Google the website, and um, there's a whole set of information there about where we want to go to start elevating permaculture design as a profession and creating mentorship opportunities for people who want to learn more to find avenues where they can, and also asking experienced permaculture designers and teachers to step up and become mentors to bring up the younger people or newer people to develop a standard and level of competency, professional competency. And I'm just, you know, stay tuned 
and check out that website. Well, Penny, thank you so much for joining me. You've been on the list of people who I've wanted to talk to for probably two and a half years now, and I'm glad that we were finally able to connect and sit down and record this interview. Okay, well, thank you. And that was Penny Livingston-Stark of Regenerative Design Institute and Commonweal Garden. You can find out more about both of those at regenerativedesign.org and commonweal.org, respectively. If you are interested in the Permaculture Institute of North America, that website is at pina, P-I-N-A, dot I-N. Penny also wanted me to share with you that she has an upcoming permaculture design course that will be taught in cooperation with The Cool Cool Farm at The Green School in Bali from August 7th through the 23rd, 2015. You'll find more information about that at coolcoolfarmbali.com. K-U-L-K-U-L-F-A-R-M-B-A-L-I dot com or from the link in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com so that you can learn more about The Green School. At the bottom of those notes, I'm including a pair of videos. One is from John Hardy, one of the co-founders of this organization, and the other is from his daughter, Alora. You'll be able to see some great images of The Green School and the work that they're doing there. As for my own thoughts coming out of this episode, I'm still mulling over this conversation with Penny and also the round table with Ben Weiss, Dave Jackie, and Charles Eisenstein. There is a thread here that touches on some of my own challenges as a change maker, but there's still more to hear on these ideas before I think I'm going to dig in to what I have in mind. So I'll try to wrap all that up at the end of next week's show. Until then, get in touch and let me know about your journey and where you're at. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Coming up, I'll be a guest instructor at Jude Hobbs Teacher Training in cooperation with Beyond Organic Design the evening of Sunday, June 28th, 2015 at the Commons in Brooklyn. There are still spaces available for this class that runs from June 24th through the 30th, 2015. More information about that is at beyondorganicdesign.org. August 20th through the 23rd, I'll be at the Radical Gathering in Bowling Green, Kentucky, running a permaculture question and answer session on Friday afternoon, a community vision workshop on Saturday morning, and then delivering the Saturday night keynote address. If you are in the area, come out and join in the fun of workshops, live music, and a whole bunch of people coming together to explore how to build resilient communities. That festival information is at RadicalGathering.org. Radical is spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E and is related to the component of plant germination, not the homophone radical like some might label an activist. September 12th, 2015, I'll be at the Riverside Project near Shepherdstown, West Virginia, recording a live permaculture roundtable. And on September 18th, I'm planning to return to the Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, to check out this year's event and hang out with Trad Cotter. More details on those two as I get closer to the events. If you're an organizer who would like me to come cover your event or speak in front of your organization, drop me a line through the usual means and we can see what we can do. That's going to wrap this episode. I'll join you next week to close up that round table and see where my thoughts are on all of this. Until then, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.